Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of the Dharma Toolkit Daily. With me, Chandra Dasa, and my friend and colleague, Dasani, will be meeting some fabulous guests in a little minute to talk about today's subject, where we're looking at different aspects of global community, what that looks like, what it might look like in future. We've had some good conversation already about emergent community and what that looks like when it starts to become further and further unmoored, untethered from Buddhist centres physical spaces. We've discussed transitional spaces, liminal spaces, and I'm pretty sure we're going to come up with some other groovy spaces today with these wonderful guests. We hope you're well, or as well as can be. We hope you're staying safe and that your loved ones and friends are also well. For many of us, this is well into the strangeness that is a global community in lockdown. And within that, our particular community, just bearing each other in mind, just holding each other in awareness, practicing together. If nothing else, just being aware that there are other people out there who are in something similar to us in terms of conditions. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to opening that up today. And I'd like to welcome you, Destiny, who's back as a co-host. Hi, Chandra Dasa. Thanks. And hello, everybody. Yeah, so I'm speaking to you from a tenement kitchen in Finiston. That's in Scotland in the UK. Gosh, yeah, these days just roll through. They roll on, don't they? I don't know if other people are having the experience of time being both very elongated and really going by in a flash. So tell us who we've got today. Yes, well, we're very lucky today. We have two guests from Berlin in Germany, which is very exciting. Uh, People I've actually never met before, except online. I have seen them online before, so it's super exciting to get to actually talk to them in real life. I'm refusing to call online things not real life. It is real life. It's just online in real life. So first of all, I'd like to say hello to Singarava in Berlin. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Hi from Berlin. It's great to be here. I'm Singarava from Berlin. It's great to be with you and get to know you. Yeah, lovely to have you join us. What's it like for you in Berlin at the moment? What's your lockdown situation like? So I'm in quite a privileged situation because we just moved into a new women's community in mid-February. And so we arrived here and we started to kind of set up the space. And when we were just finished to set up the kitchen and the communal space, the lockdown came. So I think we're in a really nice situation because suddenly we got to spend so much time with each other. So for starting a community it's a gift in a way because we've really spent so much time with each other and getting to know each other. So, yeah, because otherwise I think it would have taken months to have that similar intensity. And of course, I mean, some of us lived on their own before. So I think everyone was just so happy that we just managed to move in here before that happened. So I'm really happy in a way to be in that space. Mm. How many of you live together in the new community? So we're six women, five order members and one Mitra training for ordination. It's been a process of about more than a year or even I think a year and a half to kind of set up that project. And we've been creating those conditions for quite some time. It's, it's, it's a bit miraculous that it all kind of came into being just now. And just scooting over to another bit of Berlin, your friend Dharma Sara is also joining us. Also, I'm assuming from the Berlin Buddhistische Tor, which I've always loved because it's the Buddhist gate rather than the Buddhist center. Fantastic. So welcome, Dharma Sara. Hi there. Yeah, I'm Dharma Sara from Berlin as well. Nice to be here. Nice to be with you all. And thanks, Pranakaja, for inviting me <laughs> to this conversation. And you're also in a community, Dharma Sara. You're in a men's community in Berlin. Yes, exactly. So I'm here at Chintamani, which is our men's community here in Berlin. We are seven men living here. Only moved into this community uh, almost a year ago now, but then I went off to Grishalok. 
four months. So, And for people who wouldn't know what Chintamani means, how do you relate to the word Chintamani as the name, the kind of mythic name for your community? Oh, well, it translates into the wish-fulfilling jewel or gem. It was the very first community here in Berlin, so I think that's the myth I wanted to bring across to be a sort of a wish-fulfilling jewel and, you know, a, a place of abundance for the Berlin Sangha. Great. So lovely to have you too, Dharma Sarah. And definitely not least... Our very good friend and basically an old stalwart of this podcast, your friend, our friend, Pranikitu. Hi, it's really lovely to be back. I've been in lockdown now for about seven weeks, more or less. Got back from India after a period of traveling there, doing a pilgrimage, which was fantastic. But I returned rather unwell. I was kind of just unable to leave the house for about 10 days. And then I got better. And then my partner, Ellie, who I also live with, got ill about three hours later. Then that was the point where we moved into self-isolation. That was the thing at the time. And she got better. And then the whole country moved into lockdown. So pretty much in all that time, I've just been in this part of Oxford, which as places go is actually very nice. You know, I've got parks that I can go to and fields that I can explore and it's sunny. So on the whole, it's okay, notwithstanding everything else that's going on in, in Oxford, particularly we've got a big hospital here. But, you know, speaking personally, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable for now. Good to hear. And thanks for being the kind of leading light with this particular episode. Regular listeners will know we have a crazy Google Doc somewhere that people are generously volunteering their time on. And we're just inviting people to suggest what they'd like to talk about. And Praniketu has got a pretty interesting topic for us today, which is around this theme that we've been exploring in different ways about what's available online and the fact that this is now the context for, in a way, much, if not most, of our practice. And he's got this term hyper-availability, which he wants to talk about, which sounds really kind of sexy as a, as a podcast topic. I feel like I'm in the future already. I'm living in hyper-availability. So what was on your mind with that, Praniketu? Well, I think I've just been struck by, well, even before we've gone into lockdown, the extent to which Buddhists, not just in the Tree Ratna Buddhist community, but worldwide, have been putting more and more of their content, you know, their teachings, meditations, even their rituals, their retreats online. Now more than ever, in a way, we have access to this kind of cornucopia of teachings and practices. And the question that's on my mind really is, how do we make sense of this hyper-availability? How do we make sense of the fact that in terms of the Buddhist tradition, the history of the Buddhist tradition, the Dharma has never been quite so available as it is now? And how do we engage with it? Particularly as you know, we're not going down to our local Buddhist centers, we're not meeting up with people to meditate or do rituals together. How is it that through this new medium, we can access the depth of the Dharma as well as the letter of it? Oh man, this is stuff I love, as you probably know from knowing me a bit already. Uh, just all of it, the exciting conversations you can have, which I think obviously need to be grounded in reality and experience, but people haven't had to ever try and set up global Buddhist movements before, or all of that's happened glacially over centuries and centuries, and now it's like this time-compressed way in which you can actually conceive of and think of a global approach to spinning up your Buddhist movement over 40, 50 years. And yeah, just the sort of opportunity to take part in a remaking of aspects of the Buddhist tradition. What are the implications and consequences? So anyway, I'm going to invite other people to come in and just riff on that if they like. I find that a very interesting topic myself. When we came into Chatown and we shut down the centre, there was one of the questions we had in the centre team and I had myself as well as to how to, well, transplant, so to speak, what we already have, you know, the, the community, but also the depth of the Dharma, the depth of meditation, retreats even, and how to sort of transplant that into online format. Because I mean, more and more, 
I realize how the strength of us as a Buddhist community is actually the communal aspect. And I even relate to meditation now as a communal practice. I don't meditate just by myself, you know, even if I'm on solitary or something. But especially here in the community, I experience meditation as something rather communal because our, our minds aren't so separated as we think. One thing that I have been quite struck by is that we do these Monday meditation nights. And that was the very first thing we did online. They're in English, by the way, <laughs> just to throw in some advertisement here. That was the very first thing we did by Zoom. And there still was that sense of community. There was a sense of communal shared practice. But it was very different to what we engaged in before in the basement of our center. And still, it doesn't quite feel the same. So it, it seems to be that an online community is a community, but it's a very different kind of community. So I'm quite interested in that and interested to hear what other people's experiences are. The quality seems to be a different one. It isn't the same one. You can't just expect the same kind of quality in an online community. But yeah, I don't know if others have experiences with that. I find that quite interesting because I think my immediate reaction when we moved, when the lockdown came and the question was, okay, what are we going to do online? Was a bit like, on one hand, I thought, oh, that's a great opportunity. And on the other hand, I was a bit overwhelmed or a bit skeptical in a way because I thought, how can we do that with the same depth or how could it come from our inspiration and not just be something that fills up that's content to be put online? How can we transmit what's really important to us in a format that sometimes might not be so easy to transport that. I mean, especially with videos or like if you compress things down to a couple of minutes, you probably don't get the sense of the people around you. And it's hard to transmit because it's just reduced to the actual content. And I think what we're trying to express or transmit is something quite different from that. But I have to say that I'm just doing the retreat with Kamala Sheila. It's an online meditation retreat. And I'm absolutely delighted and surprised how well that works. And it's a fantastic experience in a way to be able to do something that is very different from a retreat, but still a really great experience of community and a deep meditation experience as well. Yeah, I think it's quite fascinating in a way because it is something that is a format that I could see going on even after the lockdown in a way, because it somehow brings in the opportunity to do a retreat in the middle of your ordinary conditions, which I think is something else than going on a retreat, traveling somewhere, being with other people, but just be in your ordinary conditions and try to be on retreat and try to create conditions there. I'm really amazed by the depth of the meditation experience that I had just within my ordinary conditions. And at the same time, a possibility to be in touch with people like from the UK, from Paris, from the US, from, I mean, there have been people internationally just joining into that retreat. And I think it just really gives a sense of the order and the sangha and also an opportunity for people. There has been a woman who hasn't been on retreat for 10 years because of her health situation. And so for her, she said that was an exceptional opportunity to be on retreat and join. I think that's also something I really appreciate. That's very interesting. If you're listening to this episode, you can hear a couple of days ago, we had Kamal Sheila on from the middle of the same retreat talking about his experience of how it's going so far, which was very lovely. He's mid-retreat and yeah, similar thoughts to yours. Singer Rabbi, he was kind of delighted with just the space that opened up. 
that did feel different. And he was even saying in some ways better than some aspects of leading a retreat. He made the point about trying to have a conversation with 46 people in real life in a room is quite hard and people feel really inhibited. Whereas if you're in the comfort of your own surroundings and he puts up two texts on the screen, there's a kind of spaciousness for people to come in and offer their perspective, which I thought was really great. Sort of obvious in a way, but you wouldn't think of it until you try. What that makes me think of, Singarava, is a friend of mine who used to lead retreats on the Heart Sutra. This is an order member called Posada. And Posada had a very unusual life, I would say. He lived on his own after his wife died and he spent most of every week in solitude except for speaking with his friends on the phone, going to his chapter meeting and attending, leading the odd study group or having the odd walk. So he had this very contemplative, solitary life. He would lead extraordinary retreats, but he would find them incredibly busy because this man in his 80s was just really used to silence and depth of contemplation. Quite often when he was talking, he'd come from somewhere quite profound. And when he was on retreat, the busyness, he'd find it so exhausting that he'd be delighted to get back home for a giant rest. (laughs) So yeah, there was a few parameters that Kamala Sheila did set up for this retreat, because clearly in order to have a context that goes to some significance and depth, it's not just business as usual in your house. So could you maybe say a wee bit about what some of those parameters and restraints are that he suggests that people take up for the week? Yes. So of course, he suggested to kind of stay away from news and maybe not read emails, which is quite obvious in a way. And Of course, give more space to meditation if possible. But I think it turns out that people just, there's a a large range of grayscale, how much people are on retreat within their conditions. But I think for me, I found it really helpful to really kind of not read any news and to give myself time and have really long open mornings where I have several sits as well and do a bit of Dharma study in between. And I think that trying to bring in retreat conditions in my ordinary life, which I think is possible because I live in a community and there is, of course, understanding. And also because we live not right in the city center. So we live in a bit more open and quieter space, which I think is also a helpful condition in a way. But I think it's basically refraining from input and trying to open up and give space, which makes a difference. But I think this is something that's it's really helpful to do it within my normal living condition, because then I think it's much easier to stick to it when the retreat is finished. And also finding that I can just still be with my communards in the apartment and we can share lunches together and converse. Still, I can be on retreat. It's really nice to have these two experiences at the same time. It was really good to hear from you just now there about the other end of the retreat somebody who's on the retreat rather than leading the retreat. With the home retreats that we're doing online every three weeks, in a way we're even further removed and that we're basically saying we recognise that people have a huge range of lifestyles at the moment and they can't all resource just being on retreat. But there is something important about structure through the week for people's practice, giving them some way to hang something on, even if it's very brief every day while they're cooking or their kids are 
in the bath or whatever it is, you know, they can do. I suppose the model of retreat is an obvious one when it comes to models of depth. But Pranikesu, I'm interested in this kind of whole question of the hyper-availability. So given that we're not going to be on retreat every week, what do we do with the sheer volume of stuff which might belong more in the cultural realm where Buddhism is now becoming a kind of aspect of human culture that's much more visible and present to people? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. In a way, that's a question that we as Buddhists have to try to answer now, isn't it? I was struck by what you were saying, Singarava, about the onus that's placed on the individual participant of that retreat to you know, maintain that kind of spaciousness, refraining from input and so on. And I think that arena of our kind of individual responsibility is that much higher when we're faced with this hyper-availability of material. So actually, it's a really ongoing question for me how I discern what are the kinds of content that I want to be engaging with, you know, not just Dharma content, but news and other stuff. I've been thinking a bit about this in relation to the Megya Sutta. So one of the teachings that the Buddha gives to a kind of wayward disciple who goes off on his own and then returns with his tail between his legs. And the Buddha says, you know, there's kind of a couple of ways that you can decide in a way what talk is helpful, what teachings might be helpful. And one of those ways is whether it has the effect of calming you down, has the effect of moving you away from selfishness. And another element is the content itself. It's about freedom from craving and contentment and those kind of topics as well. So one of the elements of seeing or relating to this hyperavailability is seeing, well, what are the kinds of content that are going to result in me feeling freer as opposed to feeling more grasping, you know, more liable to pressing that up next button that you get on YouTube, you know? So how can we shape our relationship to those teachings in a way which they sort of sink in and we give them space to sink in rather than we just end up consuming them the same way I might consume videos about calisthenic exercises, which is one of my my, uh, things at the moment. The Dharma is when handled well, will go deep and it will profoundly change our lives. And there's something about our individual responsibility in creating those spaces where it can land, as well as choosing which are going to be edifying in the longer run too. Just in terms of that specific point that you made there, the Dharma obviously doesn't fit in a model of autoplay, where it's like the responsibility is removed from the user in terms of what to engage with. We'll just suggest something and then off it goes. So the intention disappears, as it were. When people ask the Buddha what to do and they don't like the answer, the Buddha says, do what you think it's time for. (laughs) So how do you educate your own sense of what it's time for? How do you develop confidence in, in a way, surfing this gigantic tsunami of stuff? that is coming at you, even Buddhist stuff. How has it been for you to develop a sense of discernment with that, confidence with that? That question resonates with me because the first few weeks of the lockdown were quite overwhelming, actually, in terms of hyper-availability. I just felt like everything was happening online now. All sorts of human contact, you know, everything was just online, whether it was center stuff, whether it was meetings, whether it was actually stuff from a university, whether it was, I don't know, just entertainment. <laughs> that's usually online anyway. Or just meeting my grandparents, you know, that's online now as well. Because they didn't want contact quite early on. So I think after two weeks of that, I just completely said, okay, I've had it. <laughs> I just said, this is too much now. This is too much screen time. I was fortunate enough to just uh, retreat into a little garden hut that my parents own. Uh, we're still allowed in Germany to sort of move around like that. It was just a sort of intermediate kind of step or retreat for that. But it really made me reflect on how I use the screen time. So actually, you know, so when I came back and home after that weekend, I thought, okay, I really need to prioritize my consumption of media. My first priority, so I always think about, okay, you know, what do I turn on my computer for? Or what do I turn on my phone for? And I mean, obviously there's things that just need to, you know, 
if it's just work or university stuff. So I will turn on my computer for that. But then on second priority would be Dharma talks, Buddhist talks, talks that inspire me or where I can actually connect to people. And when I notice that, you know, I'm sort of getting to that, you know, up next YouTube loop, I try to be more disciplined with myself to sort of shut that down so that I, when I use the screen time, I don't get caught up in a negative spiral. I actually use it for something creative or for something that has an outcome that doesn't sort of clutter my mind, but rather uplifts my mind and fills it with something that is of value. But it also means cutting down on screen time as well, where possible. I was going to say a couple of things that occur to me in, in relation to this are what I call the test of time and then the testimony of the wise. So uh, the test of time for me is, are people still talking about this sometime afterwards? You know, I think about the kind of books I'm reading at the moment. This is obviously offline, but there's one by a philosopher that, you know, was written 10 years ago and people are still talking about it. It's like, yeah, that's good. Okay, I'll read that. I'm reading bits of the Buddhist canon, which is like two and a half thousand years old. Okay, people are still talking about that. That sounds pretty good. You know, Ovid, I've got Ovid on the go on my bedside table. He's been around a bit too. I guess the cycling through of media is much faster. That's one of the aspects of hyper-availability, which means that probably even after a week, if people are still talking about a particular podcast, like you mentioned the one on fear, Chandradar. So I think, actually, maybe that's really worth listening to. If in the face of everything that's gone on in the meantime, that's still something that people are talking about. Well, maybe there's there's some merit in that. And that sort of linked in with a testimony of the wise. So if there's somebody I really respect who says, oh yeah, you should really listen to this talk. It's quite exceptional. I might think, yeah, actually, that's a good kind of heuristic for making that decision. So in a way, I'm slightly outsourcing the decision procedure to time and to other people. So yeah, they've got to do the legwork of deciding whether it's good in the meantime rather than me. But I find actually that seems to work. And it does really quite radically filter down the content to what I think would be yeah, good for me. Something that came to my mind was I think in general I try to be quite cautious with the media input or like I'm also not using Facebook because I, I notice it can in my mind or my experience that it can trigger a lot of greed to have a look who kind of replied to my post or whatever. So I think it's better not to do that. I also feel like we have been in quite a privileged situation as well because in our apartment, because it's just new, it was newly built and they haven't managed to put in an internet connection. So the only data we have now is like a mobile. We just have vouchers for 30 gigabytes of mobile data that we can use between the six of us. So the only thing we can do is a few Zooms. And so I think that's quite, it's a good thing. I mean, it's probably a good condition to choose very well what to do with those precious data. So, yeah, I think I've used the time reading quite a lot as well, especially during that retreat. I had the open space to read some of the Palikan suttas. There's no doubt that this is very inspiring stuff to read and a good use of energy and time. But I have started to put some voice recordings of recitations and some meditation guidances online. It's quite interesting, like from the perspective of putting things online, that again, there is something where I get quite wanting to look how many people have watched it or have downloaded it. And I think there's something that's quite tricky about that because it's really weird because, I mean, from normal experience, I would judge the kind of resonance when I guide a meditation with very different criteria. But I think that's a little bit a danger of online stuff that you only look for numbers and you don't have any kind of idea of what these numbers really mean. But somehow you want a lot of people to look at your things. So it's just something that I noticed that it has a tendency that's probably not so skillful or helpful, which I need to be aware of. 
I suppose there is this balance between things that are curated and the way Pranakita was talking about. That's why newsletters are really popular these days again, because there's just too much stuff. So you need somebody to filter. And part of the way we filter is whether lots of people engage. So there is something valid in the metric side or the analytics side. Has this been watched a lot? But of course, that is sometimes divorced from quality. So it's a very tricky balance. I was actually wondering, Singer, if your experience as a filmmaker is starting to come to bear on this. Are you looking at reality with a different editorial eye or are you sort of framing it in a particular way or is that not really relevant yet? Hmm. I mean, I think I probably look in a different way on online content because, I mean, I know and I'm aware how difficult it is to make something that is really good because I mean, I know how much work usually goes into filmmaking and how much time it takes and how much skill and craft. So yeah, it just takes time and effort to make something that is good. And this is something I'm also not so sure about how easy it is to create something that will appeal to people's visual expectations or quality expectations if you don't have the skill or the money. So I think that's also something to navigate, to find formats that work Well, I think it really works well if people have a sense of community and if you connect and if they know if you can stay in touch with people from the Sangha and then it's probably not so much a matter of quality, but to appeal to a wider audience or people who've never been in touch. I think people just have very high expectations on how things are being presented. And I think that's quite tricky if you don't have huge media budgets to make things on that similar level of quality standards. So that's something I'm aware of because I know how difficult it is to make something really well and it's still a huge field of how to transmit the dharma in a way that works in video or in filmmaking so i think it's probably not been explored fully Yashabudi was speaking in one of the episodes about, well, the positive side of the opportunity that the democratization of all that technology opens up. Everybody has power, everybody can do something. But you're right, then, because there is so much stuff and our expectations are set by people who have lots of resources, (laughs) suddenly that is, well, it's both the market and also just the wider context that our Buddhist contribution lands in. Something that I've been thinking about is part of my experience is that now that a lot of my interactions with people and a lot of the dharma that's coming into my life is happening online, it doesn't really feel like I need to use different criteria in terms of choices. It feels like I'm using kind of different faculties in myself, but I need to use the same kinds of judgment. And when you were speaking, Pranikate, that was sort of ringing true for me in terms of guarding the gates of my senses. It's the way that we talk about in the Dharma life, making kindly wise judgments about what we expose ourselves to and what we consume. I do have to use slightly different faculties or just tune up my sensibilities. Say like if I'm in a study group, that's a Zoom study group, I need to just really make sure I don't over-focus and over-concentrate on the screen and strain to listen. It's almost like I need to lean back and be more receptive. And then I'm not tired out by it. And I need to kind of listen to a Dharma talk with soft ears and a kind of relaxed body and a relaxed face. You know, it's like let somebody's voice come through like wind chimes rather than tiring myself out. And that's what I mean, tuning up my sensibilities a bit different. But it's the same kind of process, really, of working out what's wholesome and what's just a bit rubbish <laughs> for me. I don't know, what do you think, Dharmasara, because your Buddha Centre work now has moved online. What's the same, what's different, and how do we make sure that it's not just consumerism now that we're involved in 
dharmically? How do you make a decision that feels like it's for the benefit of others rather than just for your own entertainment? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's a question that we ask ourselves all the time when we start new things, especially because all that we're doing is still an experiment, really. When we started to do these things, we didn't have any kind of equipment or infrastructure for online content. So this is just a big play, so to speak. So maybe that's where the Bodhisattva comes in because that's connected to playfulness as well. That's a good way to start because it was a lot of trial and error, uh, and it still is, really. So we started with live meditation classes or live talks. But we also recorded some short videos on the Noble Eightfold Path, so pre-recorded things. And that has been quite interesting because as Singarava says, it quite quickly showed that in order to produce high quality content that is appealing, it's quite tricky. And it's good to just throw yourself in there, I think. So that's kind of what we did. We just threw ourselves in there. And that's a lot of fun as well. But it also means we need to learn from our mistakes. I was actually talking on the phone with Mike Bandu a few days ago, and he was really stressing this live content because this is what makes us stand out. And it's actually something where people can connect because they have the feeling of, oh, okay, this is happening right now. And I'm really seeing that person talking like might even be able to you know write some questions to that person and that person is then replying to those questions and also when it's live people are usually more forgiving about quality mistakes <laughs> or things breaking off rather than you know when it is a pre-recorded video at the same time though i'm getting more interested in pre-recorded videos but maybe fewer of them maybe better produced maybe even something less technical something that really communicates community as well showing different voices talking about a community that that might be a next step actually but my main concern is though that's maybe is the answer to your question Dustin. is the people really yeah, how will people benefit from our content and it seems to be that you know just life or it seem to benefit people more strongly because they have that sense of a connection that is right here right now happening and not so much just trying to create a fancy image of ourselves online, but we're really trying to do is benefit people with our perspective, but also just with our presence. Something that just came into my mind, I think one of the surprises of the retreat with Kamala Sheila was really that there was an intensity and also something magical transmitting itself in the retreat. Damasari was saying the life experience and something from the quality of meeting up in a, an actual room worked online in the setting of being together in an online space and having all these other people in my mind and my heart somehow knowing that they're all meditating at the same time. I think something quite magical arose and that that's something that for me was very surprising that it's possible in a way something of the heart wish and the heart connection was very present that's great actually I, I can really relate to that because going back to same principles slightly different application slightly different context think about in the very early buddhist tradition people would sit at the full moon and the half moon and they would sit all night in silence. And we can know that and remember that and tune into that if we are in a Buddhist meeting or on a solitary retreat. There's that amazing chapter from the Sutta Napata where the elderly man Pingya talks about knowing that the Buddha is with him if he remembers the Buddha's presence. So there's something about tuning in with your imagination and then no longer experiencing a sense of isolation. One might have solitude but not isolation. So there's a sense of solidarity across time and across space, which we use in the Buddhist tradition. And I guess probably many spiritual traditions employ that faculty. So it's just seeking it out and fine tuning it. 
when you were speaking earlier about Kamal and Sheila's meditation retreat, that came to mind, that image of Pingia, knowing that he, in his mind, can be in the presence of the Buddha, which is guiding him towards liberation. Yeah, it's having in mind the community and being there together in a way and experiencing the actual presence. It's great. <laughs> I totally hear what you're saying about the sense of presence you can get through your imagination. I also think that's quite a high-level skill as well. If we were really to, to have the strength of imagination that makes us feel as if we're in the presence of our friends and our co-Buddhists as well, that's quite a big ask of people, I would say. I think so. I suppose what I'm contrasting that with is what can we do or how can we use the technology that we have to support the non-imaginative sense of presence as well? I'm just very struck by this conversation. So obviously this is an audio recording, this podcast is an audio recording, but here we are as participants on Zoom and just the effect that having an interactive environment, a two-way interactive environment has on my feeling of being partly in North America, partly in Scotland, partly in Germany as well as obviously being physically in Oxford, that seems to arise out of the positive feedback processes that you can get when there is two-way interaction going on. So one of the things I've noticed in Oxford where I've been you know, leading basically all of our events online for the last few weeks is just how much people appreciate that interactive element. We did one evening where we just live streamed our Sanghanite from Padma Kamara's bedroom on Facebook, which is what we've been doing even before the lockdown. And Pat McCamara is ever so fluent. He's wonderful. But it wasn't until we created these contexts, particularly using Zoom, where people were able to talk to one another about how they're finding the lockdown, about the particular theme of the evening, that a sense of Sangha seemed to really grow. I think where that comes into its own is when we're physically present. But it's amazing when there is that two-way interaction going on, just how much of that is faithful to that experience of being together. I totally agree with the thing about the imagination and actually the technology can take us quite a long way in that direction too. There's something really funny about that, Pranikato, because you and I have been emailing each other a little bit today and possibly yesterday as well. But actually, it wasn't until I saw you on the screen that I had a really strong memory that the first time we ever had a recorded conversation was sitting in a field under a tree. My whole sense of that environment of the tree, of what a windy day it was, and how there was so much chaff blowing around, that came really live when I actually saw your face. So yeah, I really take the point that a two-way interaction also brings a certain magic to it and a certain gifts in that, yeah. For me, there's this question of, well, it's not really a question, the slogan, if you like, of the Dharma being caught, not taught. It's a slogan, it has some truth to it. But I think that catching arises principally out of interaction you know, interaction with other people, interaction with our surroundings, whether it's the sound of the leaves and the trees that comes to mind. Also kind of interaction with the wider purpose in our lives too. How does what we're doing just link in, sort of catch with the other currents that we're pursuing in our lives? This comes back to the point I was making earlier. So long as we as individuals can take some kind of responsibility for shaping the way we bring that interaction in, I think that just brings the content that we encounter online just so much more to life. This is what I'll be exploring personally, and I think we're all going to be doing as a community and as people interested in Buddhism more generally. How do we do that? How do we bring those teachings alive through the context in which we're engaging with them, as well as the content that we're receiving? It's going to be very interesting to see how that individual effort starts to add up to a shift, if it does add up to a shift in collective consciousness as well. What's the shape of our communities?
collective mind, as it were. How do we then exemplify? How do we manifest in the world? Don't know why, but it called to mind this famous story about William Blake on his deathbed, where he's got his wife and the doctor standing in the doorway conversing about his condition, and he's having a vision of angels around him. And he sort of says to them, can't you see them singing? Can't you see them caroling around my bed? And he seems ecstatic. And there's the presence of other beings in real life, as it were. And then there's his just openness all the time to that sense of imaginative connection that bridges gaps and taps into what Dashni was saying about the Buddha and Pingia always bearing each other in mind has an effect, not magically because it changes physics or something, but because it changes the way we exemplify it. So thanks to everyone for a pretty amazing conversation. It feels like we could do several episodes of this, so maybe we'll get you all back for a follow-up. Maybe we should do it in German. If you can find a German host, we could have a Deutsch version of the podcast. That would be terrific. I'd really like to thank our guests from Germany. It sounds like the Berlin community, Berlin itself as a city, is very fortunate to have both of you exemplifying something beautiful in your own ways, both at the level of personal practice, but also just the thoughtfulness that goes into how you're thinking about resourcing the Dharma for people. So thanks very much to you, Dharma Sara, for taking part today. Yeah, thanks very much. I really enjoyed that as well. And it actually helped me a lot to just vocalize and also reflect at the same time about what we're doing and the significance of what we're doing. Just to add that, I mean, I'm 25 years old, so I kind of grew up with that kind of internet content. So there was actually a period in my life where online community was my main kind of context for friendship. And now it feels like I'm sort of thrown back into that <laughs> into that period of my life. And But it's now filled with the Dharma, with the Buddhist teachings. So I'm quite interested to see how we can actually use that vast online space for community. And there's already loads happening out there in terms of online communities. So I think filling that with our community and with our Buddhist practice is a great opportunity. But yeah, thanks for letting us talk about that. Well, good luck with your activities in Berlin. I'll go and check out your website afterwards. We'll put it in the show notes so people can have a look themselves. And thanks to you to Singer Rabba for yeah, all the perspective you brought from someone on retreat. Thanks for interrupting your retreat to talk to us today. Thank you. I've really been enjoying the conversation. I think this is really great about the online stuff that it really enhances the international aspect of our Sangha and that is such an easy way to come together and be present and see each other. And so I think that's something I really appreciate. I look forward to integrating more into my Dharma life in the future. Wonderful. And thank you too, Pranaketu, for curating a pretty marvellous conversation and a splendid group of beings to talk about all this. Yeah, it's just so good to chat with my friends about the Dharma and about its application in the world. I'm really fascinated by this area, kind of borderline obsessed, actually, in how the Dharma translates into our present state of the world. And at the same time, I think that these kind of conversations are the vehicle through which we'll work that out, or even just the vehicle through which it is working itself out. So, yeah, I'm just delighted to have had this opportunity and please do invite me back. We will. And Daphne, thanks again for your company, for your excellent steering and ship guidance as we've gone through the conversation. Thanks, Chandra Dasa. And listen, it's really delightful to have this chat with two friends who I've chatted with a gazillion times before, Chandra Dasa and Pranikatu, but also two order members who, well, I've never met in, we're both in the same room together, life, Dharmasara and Singarava. And Singarava, I've seen you on the video. <laughs> I've seen you in wee movies that Pranikatu has put online. And Dharmasara, it's the first time I've seen your shining face. So it's great. It's lovely to know that I'm speaking to a man in Berlin. I'm in a kitchen in Glasgow where I've listened to loads of German techno music. So it's all good in the head. Let's have some German techno music just to bring us out. No, I'm just kidding. I really appreciated that little roll call of places from you, Dustin, earlier on. Just the fact that, you know, you can have a conversation, as you were saying, Singer, between Scotland, Berlin, 
Oxford, North America. Personally, I feel a lot of gratitude for the technology in the sense that it enables these kind of connections and for all the wider suffering that's going on in the world at the moment, for all the serious questions around the consequences of technology, there is something very beautiful and fortunate about living in a world where this is possible because it previously just was not. It's amazing. And thanks to you two as an audience for tuning in to the extent that you are able to do so. I think there is something lovely about feeling connected to you in each of these conversations. All of the guests seem quite aware that we are all in relationship with many thousands of people around the world. And yes, let's continue to hold each other in present awareness when we can and to have confidence that other people are holding you in mind. When you sit down and meditate, whether you're on your own, whether you're connected in the mornings with us, if you want to sit with us, you can twice a day, five times a week. You can find the times at buddhistcenter.com slash toolkit. Yeah, whatever your practice looks like, whatever conditions you're working with, please tune in again, hear some more stories and voices from around the community. And we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Bye for now.